Hello, wonderful humans. Welcome back to the TFC Audio Project. On this episode of Health Conversations, I have the pleasure of speaking with Austin Einhorn. Austin and I talk about the concept of movement banking, which is the topic of his book that he's working on and going to be released later this year. We talk about the untapped power of play as a training tool, and we also unpack the problem of non-contact injuries. Really enjoyed the conversation with Austin, and I hope you find the information useful. This episode of the show is brought to you by our digital health community called Beam Tribe. The pursuit of health is a team sport, and our goal with Beam Tribe was to create a platform that connects like-minded people and presents all of our newest content at TFC in bite-sized six-minute videos that can act as your GPS for health. We created a playful system for training on beams, and we also created videos on topics like how to resolve tight ankles, how to take care of your feet, how to resolve your low back pain, or how to spend less time sitting in chairs. If you visit beamtribe.com, we've made a bunch of the videos available for free, and if you want full access, you can officially join the tribe by purchasing a membership which supports our content team so we can keep putting out weekly content as we continue learning. This episode of the show is also brought to you by TFC Shop, your one-stop online store for balance beams, natural footwear, and foot health accessories. If you visit tfc-shop.com, you can check out our growing selection of products that we offer that help you live a more natural life. Last but not least, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by The Roasters Pack. If you're into coffee, this unique Canadian company offers great subscription services that deliver you fresh beans to your door each month, along with the story behind all the craft roasters that the different beans come from. Check out theroasterspack.com, use the code FOOT at checkout, you'll get seven bucks off your first month. That's it for sponsors, so let's dig into this episode. Hope you enjoy. It's the TFC Audio Project. Hello, wonderful humans. Nick here back for another episode of Health Conversations, and my guest today is Austin Einhorn. Austin is an author. He works out of Santa Cruz, California. He's the founder of Apiros. And after hearing him on a Real Kinetic Fitness podcast, uh, I was super intrigued by a lot of his ideas. Um, Austin, thanks for taking the time and welcome to the show. My pleasure. I'm glad uh, we found the time for this. It's been a wonderful uh, time speaking with you uh, so far and I'm looking forward to this. Cool. Likewise. So maybe let's start for, you know, for those who don't know who Austin Einhorn is or what you do, uh, maybe start with the Coles notes of, you know, what gets you out of bed every morning um, and just kind of the Coles notes of who you are basically. And then we'll dig in a little bit deeper. Yeah. For about the last two years, I've gotten out of bed sometime between 4.30 and 5.30 a.m., and I've made my, my coffee with a, a nice little pour over and then started working on my book for a few years. And that's, that's really what gets me out of bed. And then um, what gets me going through my day is then what, what comes through uh, with the work that I do with various athletes, from professional athletes to uh, high school kids. And um, I try to play as often as I can and try to make that the prescription uh, as much as possible. However, I do delve into more explicit and uh, rote repetitive training for enhancing physiological traits so that people can play better, faster, stronger, you know, the, the stuff that everybody's going after. I just Amazing. think of it differently. Cool. Yeah, I love that. That was the first time someone answered with what they actually do when they get out of bed <laughs> instead of more of the <laughs> metaphor. So <laughs> that's very nice. Um, yeah, and I, I think... Oh man, so many things stuck out on your conversation with Brent. Um, and maybe, maybe one thing actually that I was curious about is um, when did you start Apiros and what was the motivation behind it and what is kind of your guiding light with 
uh, with that um, organization? I mean, really, it goes back to how I was as a kid. I never liked taking orders from anybody. I always wanted to run my own business. Even my mom, she bought me a subscription to a young entrepreneur's magazine when I was eight or nine. I've just always kind of carved my own path and questioned a lot of authority, which made school extremely difficult for me. Um, <laughs> I hear you. And I started Apiros about four years ago because uh, at the current situation that I was being employed under, there was a, a mutual time for me to part ways. And I was ready to start implementing some of my own ideas and paradigms without other people trying to understandably protect their product. I was one of their their coaches and they wanted things to be run a certain way. And I was ready to start doing things differently. Interesting. Yeah, that's kind of, um, I feel like it's a very common thread where people just aren't satisfied with the opportunities that they've got within whatever defined role that they've got. Um, and I can definitely relate to not liking, not enjoying being told what to do and knowing that if you put a huge amount of energy into something, it's really demotivating to see someone else um, getting the chief benefit from what you're doing. And so, especially if you've got something that's non-conventional, you got ideas that are bigger than the current industry that you're in. Um, good for you for going out on your own. And, and what, what is the, where did the name come from, Apiros? You know, it's, it's kind of cliche how it happened. Honestly, I was uh, in the shower and I had some music playing and Limitless was in the chorus. And to this day, I have no, no idea what song it was or where it come, came from, but it was repeating Limitless to me and I thought, I like the idea of limitless performance, but that sounds, that, that's not quite there. So that was the seed that got me to start searching for something, a phrase or a word that was a little bit more meaningful. And I like, I like words, I like etymology, where things come from. So I went into ancient Greek uh, and found apiros, which is limitless, boundless, um, you know, no, no container for, for anything. Cool. Yeah, very fitting for what it sounds like um, what you're doing. So why don't we just dig right into um, the concept of movement banking? So you've got a book which is currently in progress. And, you know, I, uh, on the website, it says it's your moonshot to cure non-contact injuries or to play a role in that. And I think that's extremely powerful for those who have context for understanding non-contact injuries and sort of how they really shouldn't be happening. Like it's really um, strange to see this flood, especially of young athletes these days. I mean, it's not surprising when you understand the context of how people are moving aside from their physical activity. But um, let's start by talking about, you know, when did you, what was the impetus for wanting to write a book? Because writing a book, everyone that I know that's written a book says it's, it's great until you start doing it. And then it's the hardest friggin' thing ever. Um, so maybe talk about like, what made you want to begin writing? When did you start? And, uh, and then we can dig into the concept of movement banking. Cause I think it's one of the most elegant metaphors that I've heard in a while, actually, as related to movement that gives a, um, end to end explanation for a lot of things that are embedded in this movement economy that we are, we all take part in, uh, but no one really seems to be able to take a macro view and clarify it. So when did you start the book? Um, how's the process been? And then let's dig into movement banking. I understand why most authors, when I take any online educational material or talk to them, 
when they, you ask them about writing a book, they just say don't. And the reason why is that I don't believe you can finish a book unless you, you absolutely have to. It didn't start out as a book. Honestly, I started out, I started out with a conversation. There's a, a colleague of mine and before Corona, we would take a weekly hour, two hour long walks. And we were talking about Raheem Sterling, who is a professional soccer player for Manchester City and the English national team. Anybody who knows soccer or running mechanics would see him and, and raise their eyebrows and wonder, how is he so fast and why is he healthy? He runs extremely inefficiently uh, where it seems like he is running with his pelvis tilted forward as far as he can. He um, has, seems like his elbows are tied behind his back and he has a, just an extremely odd pattern of running. So we th- were wondering why isn't he hurt? Everything that we knew about movement and everything that we knew about running should indicate that he has more injuries. So we had to teach ourselves this new concept and and really understand that he was an exception to all of our rules. So within this walk, we started talking about it in terms of investing that he's running at a really high interest rate, but he's got so much money in his bank account that he just doesn't go bankrupt. So that then made me really like the idea about how is that physiological physiologically possible so i had to start doing some research into how do humans develop how do our tissue capacities get formed when when does the ceiling of what we're capable of doing get installed into our physiological systems and throughout this process of writing these things down and figuring it out i intended it to be just an essay or a blog Mm-hmm. And I started learning that this movement banking analogy fit really, really well. And because people care about more, care about their money more than the thing that allows them to spend it, which is their health, it is a very good vehicle for understanding. People understand interest rates, people understand loans, people understand going bankrupt, and they understand investing to some degree, even if it's just a childish idea of, you put your money somewhere and it works for you and you get money in return. Mm-hmm. And so as it progressed from a blog to a short essay to a pamphlet, like a long pamphlet at each iteration, it felt incomplete. And then once it went from page say 50 to 51, it really, I committed to it being a book that, the only way I'm going to be happy with this is by putting everything that I have into it. And throughout that process came this life purpose of mine and purpose of the book to try and cure non-contact injury. The way I see it is maybe better explained through a car analogy where it would be extremely unsettling if you're going through your day-to-day commute the same way you have for the last five, 10 years, really your entire lifetime. And then all of a sudden the tire fell off. You would be, uh, well, one, scared, endangered, uh, and then also extremely frustrated and angered at how could Toyota produce a car that allows the tires to just fall off at speed. (laughs) But that's exactly what's happening with non-contact injuries. 
And it's not Toyota that's producing your cars. It's hundreds and hundreds of millions of years of evolution. When you think about things in an evolutionary context, which is my first perspective that I look through, it's extremely unsettling and illogical how much we break and that it, it makes complete sense when you look at the environment that we're in, the behaviors that we do, and then compare it to other species and other animal life where the, the problem isn't our body. You know, there's a very fragile idea that, oh yeah, if I don't warm up right, if I don't do anything, I'm going to get hurt. But the fact of the matter is, it's astounding that we don't get hurt sooner with the lifestyles that we live. Right. And so that's, you know, a very long winded summary about how the book started and, and where it is and the, the feeling that I hope it conveys to all the readers that, that will get it in the future. Amazing. I love that, man. There's so many things I could pick up on there, but I really like how, and I, I couldn't agree more. I think so many times it's, um, easy and convenient to blame the body for failing. And, th and that's a big problem because it's being done a lot, including in the medical profession and health professions. Um, I think, you know, in physio school, we're sold this base assumption that the body is innately flawed and it's our role to help people put themselves back together when it falls apart. And it's just, it's not a true statement. Um, and it colors a lot of what we do in the medical community, but you know, this whole paradigm of there being uh, an equipment fault and a user fault. Those are two separate categories of faults that you can attach to a problem. Um, and I think too often we attribute equipment faults when in reality, we just don't inquire deep enough or take ownership to realize that it's a user fault, right? Like if you put you, gas in, faults very. yeah, and it, like you put gas in a diesel car and it breaks down, that's not a car manufacturing problem. You didn't put the right gas in it. Right? You blow your ACL because you sit all day long and then you try and do high intensity, dynamic jump and landing stuff. That's not a problem with your knee. That's a problem with how you're using your body and how you're using your knee in particular. And I think that needs to be out there in the wild for people to kind of think on, because I think that is a completely, that's a shift in how we actually deal with the problems. Um, but it's also a shift in how we just think of okay, well, what I'm using my machine for during the day has a significant impact on how that machine performs game time or practice time. Um, and so back to your movement banking. So going bankrupt would be injury, correct? Correct. And the interest rate that you're spending money at is the, would be the quality of your movement? You're doing a wonderful job. Okay, keep going. You, okay. you get it. Okay. And then the... So when does that initial, like, do you feel there's a threshold for when you accumulate your initial savings, right? You have this piggy bank at a certain point where your ability to add to that piggy bank is now over. Certainly you can minimize how quickly the money drains out of that piggy bank, but where do you feel that threshold is? Can you guess? I would guess like early teens, but that's a complete guess. You're, you're right on. It's, it's not about t uh, the age uh, because a age is an invention. Time, years, that, that's a label that we've invented. So it's not really 17. It's, well, in terms of biology, it's puberty. It's these right. cascading events of hormonal and physiological changes. And so the real danger here comes with how dynamically unpredictable puberty is. 
Mm-hmm. I went through puberty in six months and it put me in a wheelchair and I pretty much stopped growing it at 13. And this is something that I talk about throughout the book um, where I went from, uh, what was it? Like five, six to six foot in the span of six months. And that, that growth was my muscles growing too fast for my muscles and I collapsed and had all sorts of pain. And upon some research, that amount of growth should have taken me two years. So from a movement making perspective, I went from having a body that did not require that much funding to requiring a major, uh, you know, fortune 500 company that has thousands of employees and requires a lot of funding. So by, by luck or by parenting and all sorts of different factors, thankfully my mom worked a lot. She was gone. I hated school. And so I played outside all the time iPhones and iPads were not yet invented. I had a PlayStation, but I had this, I I just physically could not sit there for that long and just waste the day away. I had to go outside. I had to skateboard. I had to climb trees. I had to do all these things. So before puberty, I was, uh, well, an angel investor. I had a huge movement bank account. So the, if you can think in terms of physics, me going from five, six to six foot in that amount of time is a small mom and pop grocery store kind of corner store thing going to Walmart. And those early life activities allowed me to spend at a higher rate and survive. And so the tail end of puberty allowed me to develop an efficient interest rate and good spending strategies throughout the the rest of my athletic career. And now at 32, I mean, there's very little that I can't do and can't do safely because of my movement bank account. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. And, you know, and for the sake of forward progress for anyone listening, I mean, there's not really much you can do to change. There's nothing you can do really to change how big your bank account was, but the single biggest variable you can change in order to avoid bankruptcy is to spend at a significantly lower interest rate. In other words, work hard to increase your quality of movement so that you avoid getting bankrupt without even touching your bank account. You can do a pretty good job at staving that off. And, you know, your point about it's not surprising that we get injured with especially non-contact injuries. It's surprising that we don't get injured more. And I have had some glaring examples. Um, I'll talk about two of them just quickly as a physio where I saw firsthand how resilient and how hard to kill humans are. And it shocked me. Um, One of them was when I worked in a hospital on a rotation and I saw a lady that looked like she was in her mid eighties, but she was in her mid fifties. And when you work in a hospital, they classify smokers by pack years. So it's how many years have you smoked one pack per day? And this lady was a hundred pack year smoker. Um, Actually, I think she was in her sixties, low sixties, which meant that, okay, well, and initially I was confused. I was like, how can she be a hundred pack year smoker? She's not a hundred years old. She smoked two packs a day for almost 50 years. And she, and I was like, if you want a prime example of how robust our genetics are, and she was an alcoholic, she never moved. Like, I was like, the fact that this lady is living and surviving and has literally done everything she can to treat her body as poorly as possible is a beautiful example that our bodies are insanely resilient. And, you know, just not being injured or not being diseased doesn't mean that there's not something going on that's leading you down that path. And I think that's a, 
you know, this big flaw in our health system where we only talk about health or injuries when they happen, when disease happens or injuries happen. We don't actually do anything to instill cultural values, whether that's in even high school, about the value of taking care of this precious resource that you have one of. And when you replace the parts, they're nowhere near as good. And I think that's, you know, another one was a runner. She runs marathons on a regular basis and would run probably about 80 kilometers a week. And she did one single, single leg squat barefoot and her knee caved in. Like I thought her ACL was going to blow out. I'm like, wait a minute, you're running 80 kilometers a week and a static under control single leg mini squat looks like that. I'm amazed you have knee joints still. And so I think it's just an example that we just spend at such high interest rates with, and, and we get all these hints often that bankruptcy is coming, but we never clue in. We just kind of like, it's like you're getting bankruptcy notices under your door and you just crumple them up and throw them out. You're like, that's ah, all good. I, I got to run. I, I can't, I don't have time for this. And we just ignore it. And, you know, I think sometimes people are surprised when they see really elite level athletes have these random injuries. And it's like, those aren't random. The body's extremely predictable. And so what's your take on how, like, why are we missing such big things? Like when you see some athletes moving, like that soccer player, for example, I understand that he was an outlier compared to your schema of what you thought, you know, movement should be like at an elite level. But do you think like those athletes are still bankruptcies coming? Like you can't cheat biology. What's your take on that? I, I agree. And that's what I talk about with Sterling is that, it's, it's going to catch up to him, you know, and he might retire without ever having a herniated disc or hamstring tear. But the, the view that I take with all my athletes is also, you know, what are they doing at 60 year old, 60 years old, 70 years old, right? If they want to pick up their grandchildren and play basketball with their grandchildren, can they? And I'd like to also give them that opportunity. And so with that perspective, it provides me with a good framework for changing interest rates and, and thinking long-term. But Raheem Sterling and, and your 100-pack-a-day, 100-year-old uh, smoker, I forgot the terminology you used, that is an example of how resilient we can be. And then there's those people who don't do nearly as much and then go bankrupt. And so for me, it's not, it's not so much about that everybody is extremely robust. Some people are more fragile for nature or nurturing reasons. Mm -hmm. However, the underlying commonality between everybody should be an awareness of spending, an awareness of how you feel, an awareness of where your bank account is and your interest rate. And that's really what we're missing is that we're not in culture, sports and movement. There aren't values yet placed on how we move. A deadlift is valued by bringing the bar off the ground to hip height. That's how it's quantified. You just pick it up off the ground. For me, a deadlift and a squat are defined by how the joints fold, how they move. And these are, uh, these are like a species that have evolved. Squat, the squat species has been around for about 500 million years for very unique and distinct purposes. And when we understand the comparative anatomy and comparative movement, then we have a pretty dang good model of, well, how humans move better and how humans move worse. And it's from these, this movement evolution framework that is also discussed in my book that I define interest rates and how we affect that going forward. The ACL tear is, you know, the, the cliche example right now. And 
the medical community is focused, well, they're reactive in nature, not preventative. And they see the ACL, uh, the uh, mechanism of injury being the jump or the land of, oh my God, the valgus collapse and it's this terrible thing. But it, that one jump is not the cause. The right. cause is the lost childhood. The cause is the environment that we uh, suffer through, all our body does. It, it's incredibly joyful for our brain. We get so much dopamine and serotonin through these games and apps and phones that are designed to be addictive to us when we get some separation or avoid that. We go back to what nature designed for us to enjoy, which is movement and good food and good people. And that's really where, where I think the ACL prevention is, is has nothing to do with the valgus collapse. It has really everything to do with culture and the decisions that we make throughout childhood, puberty, and in sports. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, I look at, I look at our current world as having two parallel worlds, two parallel realities. We have the bits world, which is digital. Then we have the natural world, which is the physical world that we've had forever, um, which is where, how we, what we move within. And, you know, you see this as technology becomes more and more pervasive, you have this erosion of the natural world time and bias towards bits world time. And I think bits world time is where you don't get any contribution to your movement bank account. And that's not, you know, technology is not going to get less addictive. This is just a reality. You can't make the eggs back in, you can't make the omelet back into eggs. In fact, it's going to get more addictive. So the only solution, you can't tell your kids to not use something that's literally got billions of dollars in attentional engineering behind it. You have to have them understand that you have to have them adopt values that make them want to be outside more than be on a phone. Because we, we always take this, I don't know, I've had conversations with parents who are like, I don't know how to get my kids off the phone. I'm like, well, do you ever go outside and play with them? Are you on your phone all the time? Like there's so many variables that we don't think of. It's like, how do I get them off their phone? How do I not let them have sugar? It's like they have to, kids aren't dumb. You can't just assume that they're like these lifeless things that can't understand things. If you help them understand that movement is, is a really powerful outlet for creativity, for joy, for happiness, by letting them experience it, by giving them the environment to experience free play, instead of just forcing them to go to a practice where they're doing shit in a circle repeatedly, like there's no joy in that. And so I think, I think we're taking sometimes the wrong approach where we're trying to like, you know, take the carpenter approach where we're trying to engineer and design things a certain way where it's like, we need to take the gardener approach where you just create the environment and then the plants know how to grow themselves. You don't have to teach the plants how to grow. You don't have to teach kids how to move or how to like movement. You just have to give them the opportunity. That's part of their default programming. I mean, right. We, we diagnosed them with attentional deficit disorder as I was just diagnosed with, but it's, it's a school disorder. It's a sit still right. disorder because the biology programs that are running in children are not designed for that. So you get error signals showing up all the time. And, you know, I'd like to use an example to continue to use an evolutionary framework and, and hopefully have other people think that way. 200,000 years ago, if a kid was playing in front of a tiger's den, well, the parent is going to educate them and be like, no, 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 that, that's extremely dangerous. You need to know how to be almost ninja-like if you want to go get the berries that surround the tiger's den or whatever. And the same thing goes if they're going to eat some, some poisonous plant. 
there becomes a a mentorship and educational role of the dangers of that plant because it looks innocent it looks delicious the plant's biology is designed to get you to eat it so that it can kill you and turn you into fertilizer for it to keep going and that's kind of the same approach that we might need to take to these devices that are anchored to everybody's pockets is that while they do offer so much convenience and so much fun and, and I love them, I would rather have them than not have them. They offer so much opportunity. There's a responsibility by parents and adults who buy these devices and ultimately do have some sort of role modeling behavior because yep. kids are so impressionable, impressionable of their environment because that's, that's part of what they're supposed to do. That's how they survive is they acclimate and assimilate their behaviors to what's around them. Yeah. They're sponges and they're, and, and they absorb things that people don't realize they absorb. This is another thing. It's like, well, I can't understand. I had this conversation with someone the other day. Why is my kid always on their phone? What do you do when you're around your son? Well, I'm usually working on my phone. That's probably why he's also always on his phone. And it's like one of these things where we always think it's a problem with the other or a problem with the biology. And we don't really under, kind of look at like, okay, well, maybe it's a problem with the environment I've created, which is misdirecting this biology. And, and even the whole ADD, ADHD thing, it's like, like you said, it's a school environment disorder. It is not a human disorder. Like, like a healthy child fidgets and wants to move and is disrupted when made to sit still and listen to boring shit that's not relevant to him. That is a health, that's healthy child behavior. And yet we identify it as pathology as part of this weird thing that we assume we know better than millions of years of evolution. And it's really, it's, it's, I mean, it's a big opportunity, right? Like I always think that the biggest problems are the biggest opportunities. Cause when you frame it that way, at least it facilitates action. And I think, I think there's geniuses in schools that are not being given the outlet to express their, like the geniuses that are gonna change the world and fix our biggest problems are not even being given the opportunity to, to grow into that, which is I well, think the saddest gen- part. Genius is only in a measurement compared to its environment. You know, a lot of people are considered insane just because other people see that it's different, but to them, right, it's right as rain. And so, that everyone could be a genius in their own right. It just depends on the environment that they're in and what problems are they thrust into? What problems do they want to solve? Do they know that they have the freedom to, to design how their day goes from sunrise to sunset? And for me, it's not that I want to tell everybody to get off their phones and go outside. It's more that I think people just don't understand the risks. And that's really what I'm trying to fight here with my book is the ignorance that we, we just don't know what we don't know. People mm-hmm. have forgotten what life was like or just not known what life was like 50 years ago, 100,000 years ago. And it's so normal now because everybody else does it. These are the same things that we're fighting in almost every, every industry. And so if you want to be on your phone all day, be on your phone all day, but understand the risks. If you want your kid to just be addicted to the screen, okay, but understand that he's not going to have, he might not have problems right now, but when he turns 40, he's going to have a big issue because he didn't have the opportunity to invest in his movement bank account as a child. And so then you're going to have an unhappy and unhealthy adult. So a lot of these, uh, a lot of things that I'm discussing and wanting to educate about is that they seem harmless right now, but from a long-term investment point of view, 
we're making grave mistakes that have drastic consequences in the quality of life that people can live, that opportunities, doors of opportunities will be closed and locked forever because mm-hmm. what we've considered normal for life today. Yeah. When extremely unhealthy behavior becomes normalized, it that lack of awareness, like in order to solve a problem, you have to understand a problem. If I have this conversation all the time, because we started really our journey into health education with feet. And I, I used to see patients all the time that would literally come into the clinic and be complaining and, and be suffering with foot pain. And no one had ever told them that the shoes that they literally walked in with were the direct cause of their foot pain. And people kind of, when you tell them that, they're initially a bit shocked and they kind of don't believe you. They're like, well, it's impossible for it to be that obvious because I would have known that by now. My doctor would have told me. And then you go through and you explain it at the level that you would explain it to a 12-year-old with very simple first principles of physiology and logic. It's like, well, and you, and you get, kind of get agreement. It's like, if you don't move a joint, what happens? And you usually say a joint gets stiff. If you don't use a muscle, what happens? the muscle gets weak and you find these points of agreement where they understand the first principles innately. It seems like most people pick these up and then you say, well, if you wear a shoe that doesn't let your foot move and supports the bones so that the muscles don't have to do their job, what are you going to be left with? A stiff, weak foot. And that's why your foot hurts a lot. And so you, it's almost like we have to pick and choose the on-ramp that gets people on board with actually being open to, to understanding. Right, because I just think fundamentally the, the problems are not being understood. So obviously we're never going to have a sustainable solution, whether that applies to training or movement or injuries or health. And um, I've I take a similar perspective to yourself, where it's really just trying to fill information gaps. Because with better information, people can make better decisions. It's not telling someone what to do. It's making sure they have all the opportunities to make an uh, you know an educated decision. Cause like you said, sometimes we're closing doors that we can never open again. And that's, that's really sad. Part of, part of the sadness and, and something that I've let go of is in the past, I wanted to, I wanted to try and, you know, show everybody the light and that things could be so much better. And in recent years, I've, I've let go of that and trying to help people that only want to help be helped because the truth of the matter is in my experience, you can't solve problems for people whose problem is they don't want their problem solved. <laughs> that's, that's so true. Yeah. And you know, the, the shoe thing, it's, it's an interesting thing because we, a lot of our choices about how we dress and the environments that we surround ourselves in, they aren't, they aren't based on logic or, you know, understanding of our biology. They're, based on a bottom line of is Skechers going to be a profitable, have a profitable quarter. And you'd you'd think with people, uh, species that can put people on the moon, they'd understand a little bit more about not only shoe design, but just clothing and and life design. But that's not the decisions that uh, get filtered through. They filter it through, well, what's going to be cheaper, what's deliverable and what are, what's going to get people to keep buying things. And that's why a lot of these shoes that are more beneficial are well upwards of $200 because a lot of people don't want to buy them. They want to buy their uh, very closed toed, um, very small toe box, heel raised shoes that are ultimately just based on business decisions. Right. Yeah. And I, like, I even had this conversation, I got invited to go, 
um, to Nike campus in Portland. And I went and chatted with the original team who created the free. And, you know, one of the things that one of the threads that came up was, you know, they knew that the free got off track from what its initial intention was. But one of the biggest things they said was at the end of the day, the designers and the people who understand feet aren't the people making the decisions to approve what models get made. That's the product marketing team to try and better catering to what they think people want, not what, not what's actually good for the body. And, you know, this whole thing of not wanting to have your problem solved. I heard a quote once, and this isn't the exact quote, but the gist of it was, if you want an easy way to not make progress, especially in the world of health, make your salary dependent on not getting better. And I think, you know, like for someone who the foot care industry is heavily dependent on the business model of making orthotics. And so if you, if, if your whole life and your ability to make income is dependent on something like orthotics, then you're going to be really hesitant to want to learn better ways of doing things that disprove that. Um, and I think that that, that sort of concept parallels in a lot of different ways because it's easy to keep doing the same shit everyone else is doing. And it's difficult. Go ahead. Sorry. And I was just going to say, it's difficult to apply rigor to determine whether the way things are currently being done are actually the right way of doing things. And I think this lack of instillment of thinking for ourselves, this, this lack of focus on critical thinking in either high school or even for me, university, we are literally being programmed to listen to the knowers and apply their stuff without really asking questions. And that is a fun, I think that's fundamentally why we got so off track. And, and part of the, the challenge is ultimately everybody listening to this already agrees with you. Right. The challenge is the people who are not going to listen to this, yeah. the friends of the people who are listening to this, who need, need all of you listeners. And I'm talking to you here to start spreading more logical messages about how we take care of ourselves and how we design our environment and surrounding shoes and, and feet in particular is especially fragile notion that, Oh, we need support. We need, we need good arch support. We need good ankle support because well, without a, a cushioned soul, the world's going to end. And well, we conquered the world on foot. <laughs> the reason why humans are everywhere is because we walked and we walked and we walked. When I was in the Smithsonian a few years ago in Washington, D.C., I was in the Human Evolution exhibit, and I was reading, well, what did, they, what did they write, and what did they think about our skeleton and how we've evolved? And there was this notion in the Smithsonian that said something along the lines that we were cursed with these uh, hips and spines that resulted in back pain. And It's crazy. You know, the cognitive dissonance is so palatable, palatable because – if you, if you understand the exhibit that you're designing, human evolution, you know the obvious fact that we went from continent to continent to continent on foot. And no species that can move that wide of longitude and latitudes is fragile. And we walk on every kind of surface possible with no, uh, no assistance. And the only thing that determined whether we walked or we didn't, or the pace is the feeling of our own body that, Oh, my feet are sore. Cause I walked 20 miles yesterday. Maybe I'm just going to keep it cool and rest until my feet feel better. And that simple logic escapes people today because they don't know that they can trust their own feelings. 
They want to trust the foot doctor. They want to trust the knee specialist. They want to trust the hip specialist because they've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on medical school degrees to know better than you. And there is nobody that knows better of your own body, your own sensations than you. And that's ultimately what I try to empower a lot of my athletes with. And I try not to have some periodized program, but more go based on the day. Well, how do you feel today? How did you feel the last few days? And what do you want to, what comes forward the next few days? So it's an adaptive design and program again with this evolutionary theory of how did we design, how are we designed to move by our environment? And again, we are so not fragile when we do the things we are designed to do. And how has the, how have the responses that you've gotten from asking those questions? Because I know that I would, I often ask, how have you been feeling since we last, um, you know, spent time together to physio patients when I was practicing and most of them couldn't even answer it. Like it literally highlighted to me that we've lost this ability to communicate with internal signals and the, and it just showed that like most people just aren't reflecting and thinking about how they feel, right? It's like this big disconnect from my body is this thing, but it's not me. It's separate from me. So I can't, you know, we've, we've almost lost, we have so many external gadgets now that give us biofeedback and tell us things about our body. Um, like how we slept. Like I remember I had a guy that was obsessed with this sleep tracker. And when the sleep tracker said he slept poorly, he felt he slept poorly. And so I, I was the like, same thing. yeah. And it, it was so interesting. Cause then I was like, how about you go a week without the sleep tracker and do everything before bed that you know you should be doing to get a good sleep and write down every morning how you feel. And he had a week straight of great sleeps after never having seven days in a row with a sleep tracker with great sleep. Cause even if he had a great sleep, if the tracker said it wasn't good, he instantly believed it more than how he felt in the morning. And it was this very weird thing, which I think happens in footwear as well, where it's this technology breeds a dependence on the technology, right? If you walk around barefoot, you develop a thick sole that's almost impenetrable to little rocks. You develop this um, sensory desensitization where things that aren't actually going to cut you don't feel like they're cutting you. But if you put your foot in a shoe for a decade and it's never seen texture and it's never been exposed to a stimulus that makes it thicken up the sole, I feel like sometimes people get their foot in the door and they're like, okay, I'll try going barefoot. And then they're like, oh, I cut myself. See, or it hurts my foot. See, I'm not supposed to be doing that. It's like, well, you need to understand progressive adaptation. Like this is a big, there's a big gap in your understanding about how the body works. And it's almost like they use that as an excuse to say, told you so. When in reality, it's, it's, I, they just don't understand how the body adapts. But, but what they're doing is showing exactly how perfectly it does adapt that we go through life starting in school where a teacher and a coach tell us what's right and what's wrong that we're not really allowed to think for ourselves and that when we keep going, when we're faced with the opportunity to do so, it scares a lot of people and it, it, it can be a frightening thing that you are the master and commander of your own life and you get to decide how you feel and the shoe removing shoes and people having pain from that. Well, good. Listen to it. It's part of the process. Because when I, when I try to walk, uh, when I've tried to walk upwards of 10 miles in my Vivo barefoots, any, any interest rate hurts. And I have to then take the autonomy and responsibility to tinker with my own gait of how do I remove this pain with only having 
the tool of how I move. Instead of thinking, I need an orthotic, I need a shoe. The solution is all within myself and within each one of the listeners and everybody on this planet, because we are part of the human species who walked the globe to get here. And so that's the, the toolbox that I'd like people to use is that their own movement is capable of producing robust sensations, robust physiology. They just need to know that they have the power to do so. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, from your biological perspective, which I, I, I think that that is the, that is such a powerful lens to look at movement through. Like really it's the only one, it's the only reliable one, right? Like nothing's new. We've just applied new stuff to the way our bodies are supposed to be being used and we're screwing things up. But you know, the perspective, and I'd love to hear your thought on this, that all adaptations, biologically speaking, are positive. So your foot getting really thin skin or getting hypersensitive or your back essentially getting jacked up because your hip flexors have adapted to a new shortened position. Those are both like the body doesn't actually know whether something's going to create pain or not. It just adapts to what you expose it to. And, you know, I think part of it is this sense of discomfort when people start to become aware of these things. And, you know, I think it's really telling you, you really see what mindset people take, right? You take, you see people take the mindset that they want to essentially offload all ownership versus taking radical ownership with a growth mindset where people are like, when they realize that their back pain is literally a caused by a positive adaptation that they've applied based on how they've used their body, it's a little bit uncomfortable. They're like, shit, I've caused this. And some people get actually angry because they're like, well, why did my doctor tell me this? I've had back pain since I was 18. I'm 40 now. Like, what happened? Why is this never told to me? And so some people get angry and some people say, oh, perfect. Now that I know what it is, I know how to fix it. And I think it's, you know, I'm of the mind that people can only prove things to themselves. And oftentimes when you try and tell someone something, you just build up a bigger barrier to them not wanting to listen to you. But, you know, and like you were saying, when you're addressing everyone that's listening to this, lead by example. Because when I walk through an airport barefoot, I do it because I literally just like being barefoot. And if I'm not outside somewhere that my foot's going to be in danger, I choose to not wear shoes. But most people, you know, Nicholas Krizakis wrote a book called Connected, and he talked about how every set of eyeballs that sees your behaviors from a distance, from up close, another person in a lineup for a store, you are influencing that person. You're influencing, maybe not directly their behaviors, but you're influencing their thoughts. If they see something very different, it can trigger, well, why are they doing that? Can I do that? Is that possible? I didn't even know we could go barefoot. And so I really think leading by example is a powerful way to just get people interested because then when they're ready, they'll ask questions. Have you found a similar, a similar kind of thread in terms of what you do? That curious person is a, a product of a certain environment and that the way, the way humans are wired in our psychology, and this is something that I get into my book because you can't really talk about the cultural shifts that need to be made without starting to talk about how our brains work. And that it takes a certain confidence to then wonder, can I do that? Mm-hmm. Because a majority of the time, there's a, a neuroscientist, his name is Carl Friston, and that he eloquently said that a majority of what we see and assimilate in our brain is just to validate our own existence. And people get defensive at differences within others because that challenges one's own existence. That, well, he's, he's barefoot in the airport. 
does that mean that I'm wrong for wearing shoes? And some people will get defensive if they don't have that inner confidence to, to confirm their existence without any external, without any external crutches. Mm-hmm. And then I think that that's really where we can start to create some change that, no, it's, it's okay that he is not wearing shoes and it's okay that I am wearing shoes. Right. But what kind of life do I want to live? And understanding the risks at play with, with shoes, with monotonous practice design within sports and, and boring training of just standing and moving a bar up and down in the same place all year. <laughs> Those present risks. And again, I don't want to try and control people's choices. I want to educate them on their choices that everything has a yin and yang, a pro and a con, and that they should be educated to be able to dictate their own life. And that's um, ultimately what I'm trying, trying to do with, with my career. Right. And I also think it's important to mention that, you know, I'm, I'm in agreement with you that, you know, linear barbell training is a very limiting expression of, of the, the tech that we have. And, you know, I liken it to take a formula one car and drive it forward, stop, drive it backwards, stop, and just do that a bunch of times. Like you're not actually using the technology to its full potential, anything near it. But I think it's also important to say that I did that shit for most of my life, right? I trained like my level 10 of being able to go barefoot on a two hour hike should not be compared to someone's level one who is just going barefoot for the first time. And I think that's some of the disconnect is we, we see the end result, but we don't see the path that led up to that end result. And I think that's especially more true now than ever with social media, right? Like we had a, um, we have this community of people called foot nerds that have all sort of, uh, they're all contributing and all learning from this kind of collective database of knowledge that we're constantly evolving but there's a big community in Australia. And when I was down there in January, we went on a barefoot hike. And one of the foot nerds is a teacher. And he said, there's a big problem with kids seeing things on social media and trying them without any understanding of what has actually gone in to do that. And he, the, what he talked about was like, there's a lot of kids getting broken trying backflips because they see people doing it on Instagram and it looks easy. And so they think that you can just do a backflip. And there's no, there's no respect for the process of, discovering your body's limits, right? You only see the end result. So you, you don't really understand the context of how that end result was created. And, and that just increases the dissonance, right? Like that person is really far from, from me. So I'm just going to think that that's a weird thing and I don't have to do that. But it's engaging conversations to let people know like, well, no, here's where I started, right? Or here is, here's how I trained for most of my life. And this is what made me realize that that maybe wasn't the, the best expression of me enjoying my movement practice. So this is what I tried. And I'm not telling you to do that, but maybe try something like that and see how you like it. Yeah. So what you're talking about here is two, two different things. And as risky as the person trying the backflip might be and and somewhat foolish who doesn't understand the process, that notion of going for it, I find to be more valuable than, than the injury that if they continue to go for it, Yep. They will. Uh, they will get better. And there's plenty of athletes that I've, I've followed on Instagram who I see them get hurt and they continue to train. They find a way to move uh, as if they were a para-Olympic athlete who only has three limbs now because the other one has a cast on it. Right. And sure enough, because they just don't stop, um, they rest with a balance. I don't mean don't stop as an always grind every single day, 
they understand how to balance their work and rest, they wind up doing great things once their body heals. And well, bodies heal, especially in the right environments with the right movements. And then the second thing that you're talking about is understanding the process. And a lot of people are afraid or don't understand that the process might be boring at times. A few of my, my athletes are becoming more figureheads to start talking about these evolutionary processes within training. And people ask them, how do I do what you're doing right now? Again, ignoring the process. And my athletes typically start out with the same thing that I tell them. There's really three things that I want people to start with, which is being able to rest in a deep squat, hang from bar, and you should be able to walk a long distance without getting hurt. And so when they get told these unsexy things of deep squat, hang, and walk, they reject it. They, don't th- they, they wanted something sexy. They wanted the Ferrari and something special and something that stands out on Instagram. Instead of just seeing that these are the three main things that our bodies are designed to do, an incredibly robust and resilient prescriptive behaviors for our physiology. Yeah. Wow. I love those three. Cause I, I love those three things. I've never included walking for long distances. I've always, you know, I, I often tell people baseline screen should be able to squat, should be able to hang body weight for like a minute. I just randomly estimate that. But the walking piece is huge because I think walking is this, beautifully unsexy and yet still very complex movement that people take for granted. And I really think that walking is to a large degree self-corrective where um, your body will find a way, like every step you take is going to be done slightly differently. And your body's essentially getting metadata, which it's then processing and determining what is the most efficient way to make this human move. And a lot of that happens under the hood where you don't even have to think about it. And the thing I love about walking is very accessible right? But you're right. I mean, it's, you know, instant gratification and the barometer is set pretty damn high for what people think they should be able to do because of the media they choose to consume. But I think we, you know, one thing I love about spending time, we, we use balance beams as kind of a a tool um, that we promote and sort of educate people about and, you know, finding joy and pleasure in the monotony of something extremely basic, but putting your full attentional density into something so basic allows you to get a deeper appreciation for, for all the stuff going on when you feel like not much is going on. And, uh, I just think this, this element of mindful training where you're actually, you're not just thinking of trying to complete 10 reps. You're thinking of every single millimeter of every single rep and and just feeling. And I think that that effort to feel your body is what allows those pathways to be reconnected so that you can have that on a more regular basis. Um, Cause most people are just, and oftentimes people will ask me what they should be feeling, right? That's how, that's how disconnected we've gotten. It's like people trying to ask you what they should be feeling during a movement they are doing. And it's really strange, but when you understand the status quo in terms of, you know, I live in Ottawa, Canada, it's the capital. There's, it's a government town. So there's a lot of health benefits money. So literally per, per square kilometer, we have some of the most highest density of gyms, like in the world. It's really weird. And the status quo is for you to go somewhere and someone to order you around when you're training and tell you exactly what to do, how to do it, how many reps. And I think we've just offloaded any accountability for our movement to the person who's supposed to be the person who knows the truth or the secrets. And it's like, number one, that's terrible for 
reconnecting with your body. But number two, what if that person doesn't actually understand movement? And I think that's a hard pill for people to swallow sometimes, but I think it just comes down to looking at movement through a different lens. I, I agree. And, you know, the norm in your area is the norm everywhere where, uh, you know, the first step to getting more fit or moving better for a lot of people is I got to hire somebody to tell me what to do. Cause I have no idea. Instead <laughs> right. of, instead of reinvigorating that inner child who just curiously explores and, and goes for it, but maybe is a little trepidatious when they approach trying a backflip out of the blue. But two things that you, you brought up that I want to return to is, the self-organization of walking, even the most terrible gates, the people whose heel hits the ground, their foot flops like it's a platypus's tail, and their knee locks out. That is such an inefficient stride. However, because our bodies and pretty much all life is designed to conserve energy, over the course of miles, that will disappear because it is too costly. Mm-hmm. Even with the most terrible shoe on the most flat and boring ground, with some time, that'll go away and a normal gait should emerge. However, if people want better walking, and I think you're going to agree with this, and maybe I've said something you've already said here, put on a low-profile shoe and go walk in nature where we're designed to walk. The boring pavement and sidewalks that most of us walk on affords terrible gait, it's really, really hard to lock out your knee when you're walking on a trail. <laughs> That's very true. And so when I do prescribe walking, if, if they're going to walk in their neighborhood on cement and that's the only way they're going to do it, fine. Like I have no problem with that. I'd like them to sort of encourage getting out in some nature or finding some terrain that is not man-made so that our not man-made structures can have the environment they're designed for. Secondly, with the feelings of our own bodies, it's a noisy mess from our brain. And we we don't know what we feel oftentimes because we don't have enough experience. And so the only Mm -hmm. thing to really make our feelings more accurate is just doing it and taking an introspective approach. Because if we're going to continue to live in this captivity, I find that awareness of our movement is the, the panacea that will help us get out of this and feel and move in much better positions, which brings me back to my next point. And that as often as I do ask my athletes, how often, uh, how do they feel and how do certain movements feel? I want them to have a higher priority to know what position that their bones are in, to understand the shape of their spine as they squat, to tell me where the weight is positioned on their feet and exactly what shape their their legs are making when they fold there. And then once they understand that position, which is a lot more objective, then I'm okay with talking about subjective feelings and connecting those dots there. But when somebody's when 10 out of 10 people squats, they're all going to have different feelings. And so who am I to tell them what they should be feeling? Oh, that they should be feeling it in that glute because somebody told me that well, squats are a glute building exercise and therefore that's where their work should be. But because they are a unique person growing up in a unique environment with unique parents and unique experiences, they might feel that in their shins. They might feel that on the outside of their quad or differently on different legs. And the whole point that I'm trying to connect is that is your impression. That is your squat. Own it. Know where it is today. Know how it'll change tomorrow. 
know how it changes throughout our session that some movements that we will do as accessories or supplemental will change how the squat feels. The priority again is know the positions of your bones and understand the better versus worse ways those positions are made. And this is really diving into the nitty gritty details of how I change interest rates is not only an awareness, but a change in the environment. So it's the multi, uh, you know, kind of a two pronged approach that the environment should create on a subconscious level and the awareness should happen on a conscious level and then progressively go towards more unconscious. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And I think, you know, and I can't remember who said it, but the environment is the invisible hand that shapes behavior. Sometimes it's easier to get people started by essentially eliminating things that make sedentary behaviors convenient and allowing them to have to, you know, abide by those constraints and figure out a way to make it work. Right. I always tell people like, you want to not sit in chairs as much, like get rid of the chair or at least make the chair way less convenient to use. And you'll figure it out. Like you're, you're, you're a big person. You can figure it out. A baby can figure it out. You can. Um, and I think, you know, this other part there, I can't remember. I had something in my brain, but I can't remember it. I'll come back to it. Yeah. And I just, a lot of, a lot of our perception. Oh, that's what I was going to say. This, you know, one analogy that I give people often, especially I used to give it in the clinic when it, um, especially related to spines, people come in and they're like, I literally picked up a pencil and threw up my back. What the heck is going on? I'm like, yes, let's talk about this. I shouldn't laugh. I'm, I'm, <laughs> well, I've done that. So I'm allowed to laugh because it is so crazy thinking about that. But, um, you know, the, this container of exercise that we, you know, I think most people can identify exercise, right? The, the X amount of things that are linear, like the bicep curls, bench press, treadmill, whatever. It's a, yeah, exactly. It's a very limiting expression of our movement. So like a 2% of our full movement capacity is, is expressed through quote unquote exercise. And a lot of times, you know, you talked about increasing awareness and the analogy I used to give often to that, to that person that bends over to pick up a pencil and throws her back out is, okay, think of Google Maps. Google Maps gives you an awareness of the landscape. If a car has never driven through an area, that area appears black on Google Maps. There is no data there. So you have no idea. If you're driving through there and you don't know what you're doing, you could drive into a river, you could drive on a road, you never know because there's no data. The or car, it's protected by the Pentagon and marked blank. Yeah, or, or that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that might be, or area 51 or something like that. Um, but that little car with the bubble on top that, that's owned by Google that drives through neighborhoods and populates data, that car driving through there is you moving through a huge variety of shapes to populate data so that your brain's actually been exposed to this sequencing of position of your spine. And what you're doing there is you're populating data so that your brain gets a good idea of this is bad. This is good from a safety perspective, right? This is a vulnerable spine position. This is a safe spine position. Once it knows the extremes, it can give you accurate feedback based on where you are because it actually understands where the, the landscape, right? And I think most people's, you know, mental map of their spine positions is just black because they expose it to the one position, very few. And in fact, some people actually instigate fear so that they're like, never go into this position. This might hurt. This could damage your back. Never pick something up off the ground. Like I've literally had patients tell me that they've been told that by health professionals. It's crazy. Um, and so I think exposing your body, something like a spinal wave is a massive data input to show your brain. These are all the different positions that 
my, this human spine is capable of and nothing bad happened. So those can be checked off as safe. But if the brain doesn't know what's there, it can very easily, like it's way more evolutionarily beneficial to signal a false alarm than to miss a true alarm. And the guy that goes down to pick up a pencil and gets thrown to the ground and can't work for a week, that might be a false alarm, but it really is treated as a spinal cord injury from the brain's perspective. And so the key there is just populating the data. And I think we have to get out of the container of exercise in order to populate enough data so that people actually have the opportunity to feel and to have sort of this internal sense of where their joints are in space. And we're just, yeah, I just, I think we have to redefine movement for people where it's not movement is not synonymous with exercise. And if all you're doing for, to get your movement nutrition is exercise, you are going to be malnourished. Absolutely. You know, something that I, I talk about a lot is there's no bad movement. The valgus collapses, the evil villain of the, the health profession. And well, you want to know why we can collapse our knee inwards because we can, and that we should also be able to own that position. It's that when that happen, happens habitually over and over and over again, that becomes dangerous. And so there's not any bad movements. There's just bad habits. And those habits, again, are, are products of the environment that we're in. Yeah, exactly. Now, let, let's just touch briefly on play, because I really think that when you have an immensely complex system, you don't often need to apply complex things to that, right? You can sometimes apply very basic constraints to a complex system and you'll get these really cool behaviors emerging from it, right? This, this whole concept of us being a self-organizing system. Um, and instead of telling people everything that they need to do, like micromanaging all their positions, giving them a broad set of constraints and then saying, well, let's see what you can do. Just work within these constraints. And I think play is something we very easily write off as something that kids do or something that's goofy. But some of the most elite athletes that I've ever seen move, I think have learned a lot of their movement habits through free play. And I think free play is like becoming a relic now. So I know that you use play. Uh, well, first off, how would you define play? Play is a moral right of evolved biology. It's really sophisticated. It, it requires a very complex brain. The reason why ants don't play is because they can't afford it. It's, it's too <laughs> complex for them. Right. Uh, you know, only things that have evolved very recently play. And play can be a very sophisticated and prescriptive science and movement for advancing movement and, and sports. It, it's a part of evolution. And however, the approach that I take with play is... I want my athletes to explore certain positions and I want them to have a lot of autonomy and I try to prescribe playful things as often as possible. However, once I've collected enough data of their movement and I see that they've got some Bermuda triangles on their movement map, then I will break things down and get extremely uh, prescriptive or explicit and, and delve into the world of boring exercise because mm -hmm. For instance, to use a very clear example, a clamshell exercise where you lie on your side and you lift your knee apart from another. That is a tried and true PT exercise for years and years and years, boring as hell. However, you should be able to do that. Um, so right. when you can't do certain normal movements in play and exploration, 
that's when I like to dissect that joint or that area or things within that movement pattern and work on something in isolation, like the F1 car, take the, take the car apart, polish and enhance one certain part of the vehicle, put it back together and see how it runs. And that's a problem solving approach for me and that it is playful and that we might explore, let's try this, let's try that because I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that you own that movement and we test and experiment. And then we go back into free and boundless play. Yeah. And I think the guidance and the understanding of using the scalpel within the framework, instead of just pretending that the scalpel is the answer, I think that's where the disconnect is. Cause you're right. There is a time and place for getting very specific to solve a specific uh, chink in someone's armor. But if that's all you focus on and you assume that by patching up that little chink, the whole thing's going to work like it's supposed to. Um, I think I know that that's the belief that's taught in, in physio school. It's like, yeah, get them to do these banded cuff exercises and the shoulder's going to work like a shoulder. It's like, really? Or did we just isolate the strength of one muscle without teaching that muscle how to work within the system? And it's this very um, isolated approach to an, a massively integrated system. And it's like, it's not that surprising. It doesn't work. I want to be sensitive to your time. So let's go another 10 minutes. And one thing I'd like to ask you about in a, in a more macro context is, you know, if someone comes to you and asks, I want to be fit. And that is their aspiration. That is their chief aspiration. I want to be fit. I think one thing I've started to ask people and the same thing with health, right? People say, Oh, you know, I said, what do you want? What is your goal? I want to be healthy. Perfect. What does healthy mean to you? And then essentially there's just a blank stare. And it's, it's interesting because someone can have a goal held in a word, but if they don't know how to define the word, they're never going to get there. And so what does fitness mean to you? Because I think the word fitness has just been destroyed in terms of what people's perception of it is. And I know as a, as an evolutionary guy, you're going to have a very interesting perspective on this. So, you know, what does fitness mean to you and what do you think it should mean versus what it currently means in the mainstream? What it currently means in the mainstream is that you are sexually attractive to a partner. <laughs> Which alone is subjective. <laughs> Which, yeah, fine. Like, dude, I've repped out my bicep curls and bench press to satisfy my own vanity. Sure thing. I will own that. But that's not, that's not the main entree of my movement. Right. Fitness for me is the ability to solve movement problems. That's, that's why we move. We are massive generalists with our movement because we can do pretty much anything with our body and our massive menu of sports proves that. So for me, moving well is very much aligned with how Stephen Hawking defines intelligence, which is the ability to adapt to change. And your ability to adapt to change mentally uh, should also reflect physically in that people who are fit movers not only adapt to their environment and movement problems, they do so really well. There's a rate of adaptation that quantifies someone as a movement genius. A lot of the athletes that I've worked with for many years, one in particular, uh, some coaches and I are all, all discussing him frequently and the scariest, he's one of my football players uh, right now, and he's 330 pounds, 6'4", and he can do a headstand and almost muscle up and all sorts of things that probably mean he's the only 6'4", 330-pound person in the world doing. <laughs> the scariest fact is not his ability to lift 
over 700 pounds or play football at the best, one of the best levels in the world, the scariest and most intimidating factor is that he can assimilate and learn movement and integrate feedback extremely quickly. And for that, he is a virtuoso of movement and is a learned thing. This is not a, uh, inborn trait like people becoming chess masters at four years old. It is a product of his environment, his awareness, and his self-determination. Wow. I love that definition, your ability to solve movement problems, because I think that is a, a very complete definition and probably one that's very different than what anyone would have, than what most people think of as fitness, because I agree. It's like the men's health dude with ripped abs is the, is the statue and the epitome of fitness. Um, and it's such a, we've been sold such a shitty product, I think. And I think that's part of the reason people's aspirations are so off track is if that's their gold standard, um, they're not going to take the right approach to, to get to the place they think they want to be, but isn't even the right place to be. It's not a fun place to try and get to. It's not fulfilling. It's, Right. It's a lot of it is about appearance and looking good, not about actually having a sense of competency in terms of moving your body around. Um, let's finish off. I, just some questions I always like to ask um, guests or one of them is about keystone habits. So are there any habits that you've picked up or installed that are sort of crucial daily habits um, that play a huge role in being able to be productive or be healthy or, um, you know, have a sense of well-being. Is there any keystone habits that you've adopted that you find very powerful? I'm very meditative with my walking. It's an introspective approach. I, I think about how does my heel hit the ground? How soft can I be with a heel strike? Where is my weight shifting to? Can I invent any new perspectives about something as repetitive and daily as walking? whether I go on a long walk or just am walking around the gym and do, doing the normal walking that people do from house to car, car to work, work to wherever else. Um, I like to have a high awareness of my gait, what's moving and what's not moving, what should move, what should not move. Um, other keystone habits are not, not so much habits of just how I've designed my environment. Like, you know, I'm a little self-conscious when my friends come over, but I don't have the only chair that I have is the one at my desk. The rest is I have like a, a cuddle puddle of cushions, um, <laughs> for, for ultimate relaxation where the, the cushions can be arranged to recline in, to lie down in, to sit in all sorts of stuff. I've got, uh, a 10 by 10 wrestling mat on the floor of my living room with a nice rug covering it because I believe that grounds should be somewhat soft and not wood and cement all the time because, well, that's not what we're made for. And so the habit is, well, habitually designing my environment for my own health. Love that. We have a lot of similarities. Um, I had like a, a weird moment last week where my, my mom came over to the place I currently live, which has changed a little bit since, since she was here last. And I was like, shit, I don't even have any chairs anymore. But like you, I have all these buckwheat yoga cushions and I, I was able to craft up something that could support her in a way that felt good, but also pushed her closer to the ground beyond where she probably thought she could go. Um, but yeah, I really think that, you know, I, I really enjoy the challenge of engineering an environment that removes 
decision requirements um, so that the, you know, the, the healthy behavior, the behaviors that I want to enact literally are the only option or are heavily um, facilitated by the environment that I'm in. And uh, I think that's, I love the meditative walking, actually. That's a very, um, no one said that so far, but I think I used to have a bad habit of always, like you get, it's so overwhelming, the amount of good information that you can consume. And I think I got to a point when I was like, every single walk I go on, I'm listening to a podcast and it's taking away from taking time to just think to myself and about walking. And so I always go for at least one 30 minute walk a day with no external input. Um, and those are so satisfying. And, and to be quite frank, that's actually where the best ideas I've had come from is when there's no expectations where you're just trying to like ab- be radically observant, look at everything, look at as many shards of grass that you can tune into the birds, smell, breathe, like try and tap into every single sense you can. And, you know, to the, to the observer, it looks like someone's just walking, but internally it's like you're in a, a wilderness of sensory input, uh, especially if you're barefoot. And I just think that that can be a hard thing to convey to people who haven't experienced that or don't have a template for it. Um, but yeah, I can definitely relate to that. One last point on, on walking is for me with my athletes, it's, it's a diagnostic. I know when the session is approaching its end based on how their gait changes. When I walk, it's my own diagnostic of what do I need to work on? It's how we relate with gravity most common. And there's such a clearly defined way of, of walking really well versus walking poorly. Gait is one of the most studied things in the world. And once you understand just an, a modicum of how humans walk, it becomes radically apparent of how they relate to gravity. How do they soften on one side versus another? Are, are they able to receive and, and have a good relationship with gravity or are they projective and refusing to bear weight? And so for me, it's, it's not only a prescription, it's also a diagnostic tool. Yeah. And I think the more that you're, the more perceptive you are to your movement, the more you can mirror that perception when observing others. And I think that, um, I really think there's something to that because knowing how your spine works allows you to look at a cat moving in an extremely different way. At least I've found that to be true. And I think watching animals move and watching humans move just from an observer standpoint uh, is a completely different ball game when you've done the work to sort of figure out how your own body works. Cause I think that that understanding gets mirrored. I think that's just part of our hardwiring. Um, and it's pretty cool. Yeah. When I, when I mentor and consult with other coaches, you know, one of the things that I repeat most often is you need to solve your own movement problems. You need to figure out how you move best because that's going to dictate what you're able to see and act upon with other athletes Every single time that I find a new door to open in my, my room of movement and I open my eyes to something that I hadn't seen before within myself, one of the first things that I start doing is giving that movement or that lens to all of my athletes because if it's been a blind spot within me, it's been a blind spot in my coaching and therefore is a blind spot in all my athletes. Amazing. Very humble and open-minded of you and I think that's probably a big part of the reason why you're doing what you're doing and you're working with the people you work with. And, um, anyway, I really appreciate the chat. It was, uh, it's always fun to speak to someone who is like-minded, but you know, everyone has a different lens that they look at the world through. And, um, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time, man. 
And, uh, and yeah. in terms of the book, like where, where's that at? What's the uh, ETA? And if people want more information uh, about Austin Einhorn, um, what are the coordinates for them to search? Yeah, the book, I'm really trying to get it out by Christmas, but cool. I also am having such high standards for this book that it may get pushed longer and I'm willing to wait. I don't want to be a perfectionist about it. I just want to make sure it's the best book that I can produce. And if that means it's pushed back another few months after December, that's fine. People can sign up for notifications about knowing when it'll be published at movementbanking.com. They can find me mostly uh, on Instagram. I I don't really, uh, sometimes I go weeks or months without posting anything, but you can find me at apiros.team, A-P-I-R-O-S.team. Occasionally I will post some of my distractions from the book, which is poetry on my, my own Instagram page, which is at Austin Einhorn. And then my website is www.apiros.team. If people want to find out more about the people that we work with and the kind of work that we do. Amazing. Well, like I said, thanks again for taking the time. Powerful conversation, people listening. I hope you enjoyed that one and we'll catch you next week.